Good morning, everyone. We are here. My father-in-law is here, so I have to behave this morning. You got me, right? Miss Sonia is going to hold me to that. All right. Good morning. It's great to see everybody this morning. I uh, wanted to start off again. This class, we have good news to share. Did that last time. We got some good news this time. But we got to get through some other things first. Um, Has anybody ever heard the phrase or used the phrase? I'm sure you have. This is why we can't have nice things. You ever said that before? It's a... Yeah, it's appropriate when you're studying Adam and Eve in the garden. This is why we can't have nice things. You know, you, you buy, you, you walk in, your dog has destroyed the chair or the couch in your living room, and you're going, this is why we can't have nice things. You know what kids can do to things. If you buy a brand new pair of shoes, best shoes, most expensive shoes you ever bought, that night you're going to get stuck in the mud and be out there in the mud pushing your car. This is why we can't have nice things. It happens all the time. This is why we can't have nice things. I was fully prepared for my 5-0 Kentucky team to really blow their game last night and be standing here before you saying, there it is, things were going too well. This is why we can't have nice things. We happen to win this week. I'll postpone that message for another time because it's coming. It just feels like sometimes we just can't have nice things. Well, good news is that here on this earth, we actually can have good things. There are good things here for us all around us, and all we have to do is look, and we can have so many of them. But, of course, we know the really nice things are yet to come especially for those of us that are in Christ. And listen, we all know that there is so much evil in this world. We're all aware of that. And there are so many well-meaning people around uh, earth and around uh, in our circles that will ask questions like, there's so much evil, why doesn't God do something about it? Where is God? Why is he, why is he not doing something about that? And usually that's raised by someone who's maybe trying to attack our faith, try to cause us to doubt our faith, try to cause us to doubt how much God actually cares for us and loves us. Maybe it's, it is a believer, a Christian, who is just going through really, really challenging circumstances, and in that moment you say, why doesn't God do something about all the bad things in the world? Why doesn't he intervene? Now, It may be human nature to ask that question, but for those of us that understand the truth, for those of us here that understand God's word, and we've seen the whole plan unfold from Genesis through Revelation all the way through, we know the answer to that question. What's the answer to that question? Why doesn't God intervene? He did. Part of our good news this morning is that God did intervene. He has intervened. We've seen the whole plan. He has not abandoned us. It certainly isn't that God failed or that he doesn't care, that he failed us. He doesn't care about us. He abandoned us. Where is he? He already intervened. So with Genesis 3, 
this morning, which is where we're going to spend our time studying. Genesis 3 tells us why this world is in a mess. I think we know. I think, interestingly enough, believers and atheists agree as to the origin of the mess. Who's the fault? Who is to blame for all the mess in the world? I think believers and atheists agree that it's us. It's humanity. It's our fault, and it has always been our fault. Genesis 3 tells us that while we are made in God's image, which we spent a lot of time on in my last class, we're made in the image of God, but we are not God. We're not God. We are subject to God. He gave us dominion over all of creation, but he also gave us a very clear boundary with a clear consequence for disobedience of that boundary. And so as we dive into Genesis 3, we're going to talk about the three actors, the three main characters in this particular chapter. We're going to talk about the serpent, we're going to talk about mankind, and we're going to talk about God. First, we're going to dive into the serpent. Genesis 3 refers to the serpent as more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Revelation 12 and verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So we see here Satan actually takes the form of a crafty and cunning creature in order to deceive mankind and separate us from God. This is a classic devil move, isn't it? This is just a classic move. He's doing it today. He's doing the exact same thing to God's people today, and we are faced with that challenge all the time. Let's look at how Satan actually begins his deceit of mankind. He first attacks God's word. And he's trying to create confusion and doubt in that. So we see from the very beginning that Satan is determined to undermine God's word and to undermine God's people by undermining God and God's word. And so we see this in um, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He takes this actual verse, this actual command from God, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So Satan takes that verse, that command from God, and he rephrases it in a completely negative way. So read verse 1 there after we we see that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See how Satan did that? Take something that was mostly positive and had one restriction and turned it completely around to rephrase it in a negative way, to create doubt, to get Eve to engage with him to start this conversation and to begin this deception that's coming. And after Eve responds to this, now he's going to directly oppose God's word where he says here in verse 4, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is another crafty and cunning move by Satan. Notice how that statement has some little half-truths in there. Have we ever noticed that before? Paid attention to the fact that technically some of that is true. And that's part of what makes his temptation so powerful in this is that he's appealing to our humanity using little half-truths. Not telling it all the way, but little half-truths. And we find out that one of the things that we must understand about Satan, and I think Mark said in one of his classes, let, don't give Satan too much power. Don't, get, don't revere him as this powerful deceptor. He's good at it, but he can only really effectively do his work when he has established a foothold with us. If he enters a conversation with us and we don't immediately shut him out, that's where he can get us. If you've ever encountered salespeople, there is a, uh, an old phrase in sales, there's a sucker born every minute. I'm sorry to say I'm one of those suckers. I'm kind of known for being pretty gullible uh, when it comes to uh, salesmen. There was a time when we, Megan and I first got married and we lived in Alabama. And my dad bought me this TV, this giant TV. I don't know why, but you remember the big TVs that sat on the floor? It's bigger than our living room. I think that was one of those moments Megan was like, this is why we can't have nice things. You've got to have big TVs and, and invite your friends in to play Xbox. And it was, I don't know how she put up with it. But after I had the big TV, what did I need? At that time, I needed surround sound. I needed a nice surround sound system. So I've shopping, I'm looking for the best system out there, finding out, getting all the researching and doing everything that I can to find out. And one day I'm at the bank in Athens, Alabama, and this unmarked white van pulls up next to me and says, hey, I got a free surround sound system in the back of the van. Nobody's claimed it. It's yours if you want it. <laughs> and I'm like, my ship has come in. The Lord has heard my prayer. This is a God thing. This unmarked white van is a delivery from our Lord to bring me this free surround sound system for my house. Shortly, really quickly after that, there was a voice that I believe actually was the Lord that said, go, run as fast as you can. <laughs> I told Megan this story. She's like, really? <laughs> really? You thought about it for even a half second? Afraid so. I'm also the guy that takes the telemarketer call. I answer the questions. I try to be nice. I tell them, no, I'm not interested right now, but thank you so much. You did such a good job trying to sell me. I'm just not interested. I do. You guys are groaning. You're like, I'm done. I'm out. I've been in those conversations several times where Megan's like, are you still on the phone? <laughs> like, I would have already been gone. What are we doing here? I am that way. And then every year, seemingly every year, most of us that are in the chiropractic profession end up at a conference where everyone there wants to sell us the latest and greatest. And I take Megan with me because I get drawn into those conversations and I'm like, yeah, you know what? 30,000 isn't that bad. That's great. And she's like, let's go. But there was one salesman that tried to hook 
us. And he, you know how salesmen sometimes ask a question, they want to get you to start agreeing with them so they can lead you down the sales process. And he hit us with a question and Megan answered it a totally different way and he didn't know what to do. He looked at me and I said, you brought this on yourself, dude. <laughs> this is why I brought her. She is not going to play your sales game, so you better figure out another way or, or move, move along. But that, that's it. Giving a foothold to Satan is like engaging in that conversation, thinking that you'll be able to, I'll be able to say no later. I'll be able to pull out of this. I'll be able to resist. But if you give him that opportunity, that's where he can really be effective and do his work. We can't let him have a foothold in our lives. Ephesians 4.27 reminds us, give no opportunity to the devil. Satan wants us to doubt God's word. He wants us to have doubt for God's love for us and to forget about the consequences of sin. It's one of his classic moves. Doubt God, forget about the consequences of sin. If it feels good, if it looks good, how can it be bad? Cheryl Crow told us that a long time ago. If, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. She goes on to say, if it makes you happy, then why are you so sad? You guys know the song. Now you're all singing it. You're welcome. The rest of the day, it's yours. If it looks good, if it feels good, how can it be bad? If it looks good or feels good, why doesn't God want you to have it? Why did God make the rules so that you can't have the things that you want? Sin is just a bunch of things that we all really want naturally. And that tyrant of a God put restrictions on it. Why did he do that? Basically, sin's not that bad, and God's not that good. This is the devil's message to us. This is how he tries to separate us from each other and from God. And you see how with, with questions like that running around in our minds at times, that's how we're like little kids, right? That's, how, that's why God sees us tenderly as children who just don't understand, who just don't get it. Like our kids sometimes don't get it. Ah, my parents don't understand. Parents just don't get it. They don't want us to have any fun. You know, they're from a generation where they never had any fun, and they don't understand that we like fun, and they didn't like fun. That's the way kids see their parents. My daughter thinks that I want her to live at home forever and never get married. I mean, that's not true at all. I, I told her she could get married at 30 to the man that Megan and I handpicked for her. And I think that's reasonable. I mean, that's pretty much how it works, right? You guys have told Jill the same. Let me know how that goes. I think that's more than reasonable. We'll handpick them so she turns 10 in 10 days. So about 19 years, we'll start figuring out if there's anybody good enough for her. I think that works great. But that's the way kids see their parents at times. They don't want us to have any fun. They don't understand. And... We can sometimes do the same thing to God. When we have those thoughts, it's not a moment where we're opening our eyes to some truth or having some amazing epiphany or any kind of crisis of faith anymore than it's just the fact that the tempter is still doing his work. He's doing this thing from the beginning of time that we see, doing his work, still trying to separate us from one another and ultimately trying to separate us from God. And in this, in this passage, the final temptation that Satan is going to use here on Eve is, you will be like God. Here's the appeal. 
to her pride and her uh, the mankind's really interest in becoming more wise and more like God. And I think we can look through history and find all sorts of evil and treachery that can be traced directly to men just wanting to be God. And uh, we have to watch out for that. Okay, we are moving on to our second character that we need to look at in this lesson, and that is mankind. Life with God, you would think a life with God would be enough. You would think that having everything perfect in the garden the way we had it would be enough, but the desire to become God ultimately, ultimately led to the ultimate betrayal. So in this temptation, man gave in to the lust of the flesh, feeding a physical need, a physical desire to eat good food. We gave in to that physical desire, that lust of the flesh. We gave in to the lust of the eyes, that covetous and emotional desire that we have for the proverbial forbidden fruit, for the thing that we can't have. We have all these wonderful things, but there's that one thing that escapes me and I've got to have it. That is our lust of the eyes. And man gave in to the pride of life, continuously seeking for wisdom and power. And when we see that, we think about that temptation and how we lost that battle with Satan on that day. Does that sound familiar to another, another time, another area where Jesus was tempted by Satan? He used almost the exact same tactics, didn't he? Really is amazing to look back and see this opportunity that Satan had with Christ to say, you're hungry. Just eat. You know what? You can turn these stones to bread and go ahead and eat and be filled and go ahead and fulfill that desire for your physical needs of food. An opportunity for him to say, prove that you're equal with God. We're on top of this temple. Just throw yourself off and show how powerful you are. Prove that you are equal with God. And then look out at everything out there. If you will just do what I say, if you'll bow to me, if you'll follow me, if you will follow my temptation, you'll know and you'll have everything. It's the exact same temptation. Adam and Eve failed. They lost that battle with Satan at that time. Jesus showed us, showed us an exact example on how to deal with Satan, didn't he? When that came along in Jesus' way, Jesus told him, be gone, right? He quoted scripture and he said, be gone. And that is the exact formula that we should follow. Adam and Eve showed exactly how cunning Satan can be, how difficult it's going to be for all of God's believers, all of God's children to stay away from him. But Jesus showed us exactly how to do it. You fill your heart with God's word continuously so that you're ready to give an answer. You're ready to oppose anyone who will try to create doubt in your understanding of who God is and God's word. We fill our heart with God's word. We stand firm in our faith no matter what comes our way, no matter what challenges, no matter who opposes it, we stand firm. And we give no foothold to the devil. He starts trying to get in and we say, be gone. Just as Jesus gave us that example. It's exactly what 
what we're supposed to do. We can't give him more power than he actually has. Notice he didn't take the fruit and just cram it down their throat, did he? He wasn't so powerful that he held them down and said, you're going to take this food that God said not to have. See, I tricked you. No. He used temptation. He tempted and we chose. And that's it. He's a tempter. He's cunning and he's crafty. But we ultimately choose the path of righteousness or the path of disobedience. Now, after they ate, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They disobeyed. They betrayed our Father, their Father, their Creator. They betrayed Him, and for the way that they saw themselves, the way they saw everything around them immediately changed just like that. All of a sudden, they recognized something they hadn't recognized before. All of a sudden, they felt shame and guilt for the very first time. And now they're in a situation in the garden where they are anxiously, anxiously waiting for God to come, to arrive, to confront them about their sin, about their rebellion. You guys, has anybody here ever done anything so wrong that you just sat around in shame and guilt and anxiously awaiting your parents or someone else to let you know what your sentence is? Yeah, believe it or not, when I was a kid, I was a little bit of a rebel. I got in trouble a few times. And when I was at Florida College, I got one demerit in two years for wearing a sleeveless shirt in the student center. Absolute rebel. I was out of control. I'm, I'm better now. But... I know, Megan's thinking, okay, what story are you going to tell about getting in trouble those two or three times you got in trouble? But when I was about four, my older brother was about seven. My dad was the athletic director of a high school, basketball coach and all that. So when I say I grew up in a gym, it's quite literally the gym was my babysitter for a lot of my childhood. And so my dad was the athletic director, so he was in charge of a lot of different things for a lot of different sports. And one of the things that we had to do, I guess, for compliance to be able to host volleyball games and tournaments, you guys ever seen those towers, those volleyball towers that holds the net and the referee will stand up in the tower, be able to see the net and make calls? Well, they had to hire some company to come out and wrap foam all around these towers because they were made out of wood and they were not safe for... The, the girls that would be slamming into these wooden towers. And so they wrapped them in foam. It was a big thing. They finally got them all wrapped up. And now our school could host volleyball and a big tournament. Well, my dad decides to leave his four and seven-year-old boys in the gym unsupervised for many, many hours. My brother and I used to play in those towers. We'd climb up in them and play around and go down inside. And it was a little cave and we'd attack each other. But this time they're all covered in foam. What are we going to do? So my brother, again, the older brother that my parents gave me, I had no choice in the matter. He decides, you know what, if we just create a little opening, we can get inside there. So he tears it a little bit. We go inside. Before you know it, he needs a window to attack me from, so he tears out a little more. And then he started to realize we can tear this foam and start making these shapes. So my brother tears the foam and makes a perfect Millennium Falcon. To four-year-old me, it was perfection. It was awesome. 
So I decided I'm going to make a spaceship, an X-wing, whatever it is. And before you know it, me and my brother are chasing each other with these pieces of foam that we have ripped off of these volleyball things. When we finally were so excited, I heard my dad approaching. We were so excited to show us, show him our creations, <laughs> our little foam figures that we had made. Dad, look, look. I've never seen him so mad. I can't remember exactly because I was only four, but I picture just the red fire as he realizes where this foam had come from. My dad needed a minute. If you're a parent, have you ever needed a minute from your kids? You have a, you have a moment where you're like, uh, I got a lot to say about this, but I need a minute <laughs> because if we talk now, this is going to be bad. I don't want to talk to you out of anger. To his credit, that was his response. He called mom and said, you better come get these boys. <laughs> if you like them, you better come get them because it might be over for them. And he spent the rest of the day scrambling to figure out what they're going to do about their destroyed uh, volleyball pads. We went home scared to death what was coming. And everybody has a story where they put on extra underwear and extra pajamas for the beating they were going to get. My brother and I did it. We wrapped ourselves up. I remember at least three pairs of underwear, at least three pairs of pajama pants. We were stacked up. We tried to cover our sins and protect our bottoms for the punishment that was coming. And we thought that was going to work. And I don't remember a lot. I remember eventually it got so late that we were so hot and sweaty. It was just like we're sweating from guilt. We're sweating from shame. We're sweating from all of the pants we were wearing. And... At some point, we just said, okay, we're, we're taking these off, and whatever comes is what comes. And That night, my dad comes in, and it was one of those really good kind of tender moments, one of those moments where the father comes in and says, you messed up. And we go, yeah, we know. And he says, it's going to be all right. Don't worry. And there was no more punishment. There was no spankings. We were, we were fine. We survived. We're here. And we live to tell about, about that story. But it was one of those moments of fear and dread and anxiety that stuck with me all these years. And then, thankfully, thankfully, a, a merciful father. We all have stories like that. I'm sure we've all felt in those, in those moments the way Adam and Eve must have felt as they, for the first time, understand shame and guilt. For the first time, they're hiding from God, trying to cover and trying to probably just hope, maybe he doesn't know. I don't know, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe we can get away with this. I don't know, Eve, we're in a mess. Third and final character we're going to study here is our Lord, is God, and how he dealt with this treacherous situation. Because this story, this story is not about Satan's power. It's not about how crafty and cunning and, and how evil he is and how he's still working. That's not what this story is about. This story is not about us and our rebellion and Satan and his temptation. Even though he was a major instrument and played a prominent role in our deception and what ultimately happened, the story is not about him. This story is about God's love for humanity. That's what this is all about. I think one of the reasons that we love listening to McGuigan when he's here and reading his commentaries, I don't think anybody paints a better picture for how much God loves humanity 
And it's so true here in this section. We see it exactly. God patiently comes to his children, and he knew exactly what they had done. He knows what they had done. He knows. And he knows that they don't know that he knows. And that they're hiding because they don't know that he knows, but he knows. He knows exactly what's going on. They try to cover themselves just as we try to cover our own sins. And just like them, we fail miserably, just like they did. God's patiently walking in the cool of the day. I'm assuming he needed to cool off. You know, God needed a minute, right? I'm going to deal with them, but I need a minute. So he comes to them and he says, where are you? Where are you? Did God know where they were? He knew where they were. Where are you? What a great, a great purposeful question from God here. This question is to signify that man is lost and separated. Things have changed. That man needs to give an answer for what has occurred, for what's happened. And I think it also shows the heart of God that he seeks after his lost children. Where are you? I am seeking you. Not just to punish. but God is always seeking us because he wants to be with us. God wants to express his sorrow here for their bad choices. Yes, it's their bad choices. Those of us that raise kids, they make them. We knew they were going to make them before they made them, and then they made them, and then we knew they made them. And then we asked them, what'd you do? We know what they did. The lamp is broken right here. There's a baseball next to it. What'd you do? What happened? We know exactly what happened, right? The opportunity to come clean is there. The opportunity to express our sorrow for their bad choices is is given And I think as a kid, maybe I read this like a kid. Oh, no. We messed up. God knows. He's coming. God's coming. He's going to get us. We're in trouble. Adam and Eve are in trouble. Oh, no. What's going on? Hide. Guys, cover yourselves up and hide. God's coming. He's in the garden. He's coming. And you read that like a kid, and then you grow up, and and you read this with maturity and a totally different understanding. Um, Now that we've seen God's whole plan unfold, and we see that the God in the garden and the God of the Jews and the God of today is the same God, the same loving, tender, and merciful God, and he's in the garden to confront his children, to ask them, where are you? What happened? Don't we feel that, you know, he had to deliver a punishment. He knew that. He knew that the separation had been created. The bad choices were made. Sin was in the world. He knew this. And he had to deliver a punishment, which I know hard for him. Anybody ever find it difficult to punish your kids? Depends on what they did. But most of the time, we find it really hard. We don't want to lay consequences down. Certainly don't want to take their screens away from them. That gives us some peace and quiet occasionally. We've got to take them away. It's not fun. We don't like laying down these punishments. And I know the way I love my kids. I know God's love surpasses mine so far. And I know he didn't want to levy this punishment and issue this separation. But the choices had been made. The tempter was successful. People failed. I don't know why we ever doubt how much he loves us. It's difficult. It's part of who we are. I don't know why I ever feel like maybe he dealt too harshly with with his people at times. Um, It's just not not the case. We know of his love because we can see the full picture. We see 
Him continuously seek us, continuously seek to redeem us. Throughout all of our rebellion, we read through this whole book, He continuously gives us an opportunity for redemption. Now, God's going to ask two more questions here, and uh, He already knows the answer to these questions, but in verse 11, we get two more questions. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Yeah, he knew the answer to those questions right away. But Adam sure didn't help himself with his answer, did he? I mean, how could it be any worse, Adam? Verse 12, he says, That woman who you gave to me gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. See what he did there? He threw Eve and God under the bus. The only other person and his father and creator, he blamed both of them. So... Just uh, threw them both under bus. Not the right uh, response for sure. I know sometimes we see people uh, back talk their parents. We see kids say things to their parents and we go, whew, if I'd said that to my mom, if I'd said that to my dad, he would have throat chopped me and paralyzed my vocal cords for a half hour, right? So you see those opportunities, you're like, no, kid, don't, no, no, stop, please stop. And that's exactly what Adam does. But, you know, sin makes us do that sometimes. Sin causes us to turn on each other, causes us to pass the blame. And it is always a shameful defense. Absolutely always. Genesis 3 shows us that God created man for friendship. That God gave us everything we could ever have wanted. He walked with man. He walked with us. He showed us that our truest blessing, our greatest blessing is intimately tied to fellowship with Him. Fellowship with God is our truest blessing. God showed them that, and in return, He got betrayal, rebellion, and then ultimately, He got blamed for it. We have a patient God. We have a merciful God, all things considered. Where there had been joy at God's approach to that point in the garden, when God would approach, there used to be joy, there was now fear. Where there was loyalty toward God and to one another, there was now placing blame. Where there was warm communion and fellowship, there was now separation. Where there had been glory and honor, there was now shame and disgrace. Sin had officially entered the world. But as Satan tempted mankind and he brought sin and death to this earth, God went after him like an angry bear goes after a bear cub. Satan's first victory over man, God defeated him on the spot and told him all about how his son would crush him and save mankind from darkness. So listen, we know, to wrap this up, we know where humanity was in the garden. We understand where we were and how good we had it, and we know where we are now because of our sinful nature. But we also know where we're going. We're going to dwell with God forever and be transformed into the likeness of the glory of Christ. And that is our good news for today. Thank you for your attention. See you next week.